She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium, season one. Episode four, The Judge. This episode was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and it originally aired on Friday, November 5th, 1996 at 9 p.m. In this episode, the Millennium Group sends Frank to investigate a series of killings that involves people being sent body parts in the mail to signal the righting of wrongs by a failed criminal system. Ooh. Yeah. This episode was written by Ted Mann and directed by Randall Zisk. Ted Mann will write or co-write four episodes this season, and then he would go on to write for NYPD Blue and Deadwood, among other shows. However, most of his credits are as a producer, including 21 episodes of Millennium, all in season one, 42 episodes of NYPD Blue, 24 episodes of Deadwood, and 24 episodes of Homeland. This is Randall Zisk's only directing credit on Millennium, but he has a lot of other directing credits, including 35 episodes of Monk. On Monk, he was credited as Randy Zisk, and in addition to directing, he's also credited as co-executive or executive producer on 122 of Monk's 125 episodes, so almost all of them, Mm -hmm. as well as having producing credits on several series, including executive producer on 34 episodes of Bones. Both shows I watched a lot of, although I I prefer Monk to Bones. And I prefer the books that Bones is based on to the TV show. Oh, snooty, snooty. The Temperance Brennan series (laughs) by Kathy Reichs. Just book Brennan is way better than TV Brennan, but TV Brennan has her pluses too. So I guess it just kind of depends. So it's dark and rainy, and we're at Lucky Pins Bowling Alley. And the screen legend says Seattle, Washington. And in the cafe section, the camera focuses on two men, one of whom receives a piece of key lime pie from the waitress. And then we see another man enter and he sits at a nearby table and the waitress goes over to him and takes his order, a beer and a tuna salad sandwich. But the man never averts his gaze from the man eating the key lime pie. So his beer and sandwich arrive and he thanks her, but he still never averts his gaze. How this honestly, how this goes on without anybody noticing this dude is just like totally staring at the other guy. I don't understand. Like the waitress doesn't notice, like the dude being watched doesn't notice. Anyway, it's kind of weird. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because he never stops looking at the other dude. The waitress brings the two men their check and looks up and sees the man who ordered the beer is gone. His beer has been drunk, but his sandwich is uneaten. And then outside, the man who was eating the pie waves to his friend as he leaves because he's like in his car and so he's driving away. And then he goes over to his own car, and as he's opening the key, he turns and kind of faces the camera, and he's all, evening. And then we get the flip, and we see the man he's talking to is the man who was staring at him, but that man says nothing. And then he's like, evening, says it again, again, getting no response, but then he sees that the man is holding a bowling ball, and then we hear a thunk, and we hear the ball hit the ground, and it rolls, and we see the pie man laying on the ground. And his attacker pulls out a knife. Uh oh. And then the scene cuts. So that doesn't look good, though. No. So then it's daytime, and there's a delivery man, and he's ringing the bell at the home of one Annie Tisman, 3845 Regent Street, Seattle, Washington. She says, I haven't ordered anything. 
but the name and the address are correct. So she signs for it and she goes inside to open it and she opens it. And inside is a bloody severed tongue that's still tinted with key lime pie on it. So it's kind of like all green on the end and it's all bloody and gross. And she's like, ah, <laughs> and screams. So. Yeah, she's really eager opening the package too. She's like, what could this be? <laughs> well, she wasn't expecting anything. So right. Like, so it's exciting. It's like maybe someone sent yeah. me a present and then it's it's a tongue. So it's all gross. like in plastic and then like a newspaper, and then she opens it up and it's like there's a big old and, and it's like a lot of tongue. They like they cut that one out deep. So, yeah. Yeah, and still got some key lime pie on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not very good key lime pie if it's turning your tongue green, though. It means it's got dye in it. No, <laughs> have to have dye in it. Just because it was super creamy and delicious. I guess maybe it's tongue. got a lot of limes zest or something. I don't know. I, I mean, it wasn't like lime... it was super bright green. It was just yeah. green. I don't know. Key lime pies never turned my tongue great. Maybe I'm eating good key lime pie. Oh. Maybe. I mean, I've I've never had the stuff from Key West, so well, you know, okay. someday, someday. Annie Tisman is played by Donna White who plays a therapist in the X-Files season four, episode five, the field where I died, which is pretty in conjunction with this episode. So I recognized her. (laughs) She also appeared on MacGyver, Eureka and Stargate SG one. Yeah. I only find it interesting. And honestly, barely at that. I didn't, I wasn't going to mention who she was. Cause I was like, ah, she's, cause she's pretty much in the scene and then that's it. And yeah. She's, she's not, bit, I just recognized her. I'm like, where beginning. did I just see her? Yeah. And it was the field where I died. So. But because you did that, I was like, huh. And then I was looking the next episode of millennium. So the one after this, there's someone who has a similarly small role. In fact, so small. I don't even, I didn't even plan to mention it. This one, at least she's named this episode. The dude, the next one, he's not even named. He does have a named credit, but he's not even named, so I'm not going to mention him at all. But anyway, he appears in the X-Files episode right before The Field Where I Died, which is season four, episode four, Unruway. And both The Field Where I Died and the next episode of Millennium, which is 522666, were written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong. And none of that's important at all, but it just goes to show that I will find connections anywhere if I have to. (laughs) There's a lot. I mean, like we've talked about, there's a lot of Millennium X-Files crossover and a lot of them are very bit parts. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to mention them all, but some of them are kind of fascinating. So those two episodes are her only X-Files universe, like this one and that one. Those are her only ones, though, right? As far as Mm -hmm. I remember. Yeah, she doesn't have a lot of credits overall at all. So I think she was in the movie Saved as well. And oh. she was in a couple episodes of other stuff, but it looks like she was mostly just kind of in single episodes of shows and then a couple movies. And it was like, eh, I'm going to do something else. So. Yeah, I don't know if she's still acting. I don't remember when her latest credit was. I think it was a couple of years ago, so I don't know. Okay. But anyway, so that ends and we get the main credits. And then we come back and we get another epigraph. And this one is, the visible world seems formed in love. The invisible spheres were formed in fright. H. Melville, 1819 to 1891. Not sure why they went with H. Melville instead of just St. Herman Melville, and why they had to like give like his birth and death dates. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, and also, the quote is technically incorrect. It is from chapter 42 of Moby Dick, which is, though in many aspects, this visible world seems formed in love, the invisible spheres were formed in fright. 
So like if you're going to alter quotes, there are ways to do it. And if you're going to change the word, that's fine. But like they change this to the and they don't acknowledge that they changed it. So ellipses are my pet peeve, too. And in fairness, though, if you do look this quote up, you will find it in all those little affirmational images and almost all of them say the visible world. So it's misquoted. I mean, not that they probably did that for this because this is 1996. So, but yeah, so it's misquoted everywhere. Yay. Hooray. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, anyway, that happens a lot. Go back to your primary sources, please. So I'm not even going to get into all the grammar stuff about how you're supposed to do quotes and how you're supposed to make sure that you change things. And uh, yeah, we're uh, supposed to put it in brackets if you change the word. Let's put it in brackets. If you remove words, you're supposed to put the ellipses. But I learned old school way is you put the ellipses in brackets, too, because it's not part of the quote. Apparently now you don't have to put brackets around the ellipses, which I'm like, well, that's not mm, anyway. So, yeah. But I'm in my world, if you change it, you got to let people know you changed it. So. Yeah, or at least you, you should, especially like on TV, I would think. But if it's just like on your Tumblr or something, I guess. Have well, even it, then, right? I mean, you know, just because <laughs> I mean, don't be lazy. So it's your Tumblr, whatever, like use proper technique. Anyway, Rah! ranty over. OK, bye. So then we're in Seattle, Washington, and we're outside Tisman's home and there's a police presence and Frank Black arrives. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, he's there. He's there. To, he's on the case. And inside, Bob Bletcher is sitting and Tisman comes out of the bathroom and she looks like she's been throwing up. She looks pretty sick. She looks unhappy. Yeah, well, we hear the toilet um, flush, too. So, And honestly, I would be similar. So I get it. And she asks when they're going to take that thing away because they're still like looking at the tongue on her coffee table and she kind of wants it gone and out of her house, which, again, don't blame her. And we see that like Gable House and Teeple are examining the bundle. So they're the ones kind of looking at the tongue and there's, you know, the box there and all the evidence is still there. And Tisman doesn't know why someone would do something like this. And then Frank enters and Bletcher tells the officer to let him in because the officer tries to like stop him. And it's like, it's a crime scene. And then, you know, Bletcher's like, no, no, that's Frank Black. You let Frank Black in. We need him. We need him. (laughs) We need his his non-psychic abilities that are eerily similar to a psychic detective. So Frank approaches Gable House and Teeple and he looks at the cardboard box and he picks it up and then he sees the flash of the victim and the tongue being cut out. And he asks if they contacted the shipping service, which obviously would be one of your first places you would go, right? And he learns that the package was dropped off in like a drop box for the service so he didn't like go into a store. And it had a fraudulent billing ID and a fake return address. Yeah. Which I'm thinking, like, why was it even delivered then? Like, they would have realized all that fake ID billing stuff before they sorted it for delivery. So if nothing else, it should have, like, at least arrived with, like, with, like here's your package that you don't know is coming, but you owe me, like, $15. I know. I was going to say it would have been, like, a cash-on delivery tongue. Like, she would have had yeah. to pay for it because services like that would have been, like, nope, we're not. We're not doing yeah, that. It's not like free. you just like, yeah, licked a stamp and like stuck it on there and put a fake return address. But like if they had skipped the fake billing ID, that would be fine. Cause like fake return, they're not going to check the return address, but then yeah, how, how did it get track who paid for it? Right. So they had to, I guess they kind of had to say that, but at the same time, it kind of messes it up because then you're like, well, then why did they deliver it? They were just like, nope, not delivering this. It's a very lax and generous delivery service, I guess. I guess. 
So they ask Frank if he's seen all he needs to see, and Frank nods, and they finally start bundling up the evidence for removal, which I'm sure makes Miss Tisman very happy. And Bletch calls to Frank, and he sent Tisman over to a friend's because she couldn't really give them anything that would help. She is a bookkeeper. She's been widowed for 10 years. She has no romantic involvement, no family issues, no grievances. There's basically no reason for anyone to have sent this to her. And Frank is like, well, this isn't the first time you've seen this though, right? And Bletch is like, no, over the last four years, they've had fingers and part of a hand sent to three individuals. There's been no discernible reason as to why or any connection between the individuals that they've been able to find. Additionally, like fingers, a hand, a guy can live without those, but a tongue? And I think he's sort of implying that that would not be a fun life, but also, I mean, the the way it's cut out, you can tell there's probably a lot of bleeding. And Frank is just like the victim is dead because his non-psychic psychic abilities have told him that that is the the case. So, yeah, Yeah. I think he's trying to get it like, you know, like if if someone cut your fingers off your hand, like you might still be around. You could work around it. But yeah, Yeah. cutting the tongue out. I mean, that's you have a lot of blood in that area of your body. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So then it's evening and we see Catherine Black is signing for a package and it's actually the same delivery company and the same driver. So, uh oh, that is he's still good. working his route after dropping off a tongue. I guess they didn't pull him. I guess so. his, yeah, he's his had a long day at his too. truck or anything. Yeah. <laughs> so Frank is reading the story to Jordan and then Frank sees the package and stops reading abruptly. <gasps> and then Catherine asked if he was expecting a package and he says, yes, files from Bletcher. And then he gets up and he takes the package and he starts to head to his basement office. And then Jordan asks if he'll finish reading the story to her before bedtime. And he says he will. So they pull a little trick on us, made us think that Frank was going to get some body parts in the mail, but he didn't. He knew it was coming. So Yeah. So Frank is scanning photos of the previous crimes, severed fingers and the hand that they may have come from. I'm not sure because like the hand, like the partial hand is also missing fingers. And so, like, are the fingers separate? He says it's been over four years and there were fingers and part of a hand. But I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, they never really specify that. They don't so, really. I got the impression it was supposed to be different victims. But, yeah, it is weird. Yeah. So he's on the phone and it looks like he's been transmitting the photos to whoever he's talking to. So he must be, like, scanning them and then sending them out. And they discuss the inability to find the perpetrator. But more importantly, the victims have also never been identified. And so Frank believes the killer and the victims do not know each other, but he discerns a purposefulness to the actions and thinks the local medical examiner could use some help. And then Catherine calls to Frank and she comes downstairs. She's like, dinner's on the table. And he's like, I'll be right there. And then the person on the phone says they'll send over Cheryl Andrews to assist the medical examiner. And he tells Frank to enjoy his dinner. I think he's talking to Jim Pinsears, but I couldn't match the voice. So. It doesn't yeah. sound like Peter Watts, so I think it's no. And Pinsir's does show up later, so it's probably supposed to be him. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't, I couldn't match the voice. My ear isn't that great, so. So then we're in a dark morgue, and Cheryl Andrews is there examining the tongue as Bletcher, Frank, and Jim Pinsir's observe. She states that the previous body parts seem to have been removed from the victims while they were alive, but the tongue appears to have been removed after death. Additionally, the instrument used wasn't as sharp or skillfully used as in the previous cases. And Bletcher's like, well, would that indicate rage or loss of control? But Andrew says that's doubtful. There's no indication of forcefulness, just imprecision. A lot of false starts and repetitive cuts. 
Frank states that this is a pattern change. And Jim says it's unlikely an intentional deviation. Andrews posits that the victim died prematurely or the killer was interrupted. Jim suggests the killer might be getting lazy and more casual as the killings lose their novelty. And Bletcher says, well, none of that tells them much. But Frank says it tells them that the killer is unconcerned with being caught and is no less dangerous, maybe even more so. Nothing indicates that this is going to stop. <gasps> and Cheryl Andrews is played by CCH Pounder, which I was so excited when I saw her name in the credits. I was like, yay! You might remember she played Agent Kasdan in Twain Berry mm-hmm. in the X-Files, which, I mean, she was so great, and we really wanted her to, to come back. Yeah, she, she will come back in four more episodes here and as Cheryl Andrews, so that's cool. That's cool. I'm glad she's at least yeah. getting some some screen time. It's much yeah. deserved. And then she also played a nurse in One Breath as well. Yeah. Which is interesting that- because, because she plays one character in Dwayne Barry, which is the episode right before Scully disappears. And then she plays a nurse in the episode where Scully reappears. Mm-hmm. So, mm. Maybe she's working with the aliens. Maybe she's undercover. <laughs> But now she's playing someone else. So, yeah. Yeah. So then we see a man with a scar and he's standing on the street at night. And what looks like a black school bus pulls up to the street and it's actually a correctional vehicle. So it kind of is like a school bus, but for bad students, not really students, it's for prisoners. Let's off an individual who looks around and then crosses the street and goes into the tittle tattle room, which is a bar. The man with a scar watches him. And then inside, the man from the bus is drinking shots. And then the man with the scar sits next to him and orders a water and another round for Mr. Bardell. Bardell, who is the guy who just got off the bus and was drinking shots, asks what he wants. And the man with the scar says, Bardell has just been let out of prison, a newborn released into the world. Then he recites Bardell's history. Since 15, he's been released six times, and yet his total time outside prison has been less than a year. Bardell asks if he's a cop. And the man continues... He's out this time, having served eight years for robbery with violence, but he's never stood trial for most of what he's done. Bardell says that if he's a parole officer, he has 24 hours where he has to report. The man continues, two murders, the girl in Tacoma last time he was out, and the man who picked him up hitchhiking when he was 17. So apparently these are murders that he committed that he's never stood trial for, that no one knows about except for this guy. Hmm. Yeah. There are others he killed in prison, which I'm like, if you kill people in prison, people should know about that. Like, I think you should be like, you'd be serving time for those. But apparently, apparently not. Apparently, in Well, prison, and also, if you're on parole, you shouldn't be drinking beer. But yeah, there's a lot of this stuff for him. OK, yeah. whatever. <laughs> it's just he's talking about murders, like a lot of crimes he's never stood trial for. And I'm like, you kill people in prison. They're going to know about that. But anyway. Yeah, you would think so. Yeah. The man admires Bardell's capacity for action and wants to keep him in the world. His nature can serve a higher purpose. Bardell says, you want to keep me from going back to prison? And the man says, without his help, he'll be back in days, possibly less. He says he will keep Bardell in the world. Thinking he knows what's going on, Bardell is like, you're a lawyer, right? And the man corrects him. He's like, no, Mr. Bardell, I'm not. I'm a judge. Okay. Yeah. So the judge is played by Marshall Bell. He played Colonel Calvin Henderson in the season one, episode 10 episode of X-Files Fallen Angel. 
He is mostly a character actor with roles in shows like Slider, CSI, Criminal Scene Investigation, and The Shield, but has had larger roles on Good vs. Evil, Deadwood, and Legends, which was created by Howard Gordon and looks strangely interesting. Honestly, I was reading a little description of it. I was like, huh, that sounds interesting. We know it's written by Howard Gordon. Hmm. Howard Gordon's written some good stuff, okay? He's not. And he's also responsible for 24. So, oh, never going to forgive you for that, buddy. Oh, he I is like still 24. working. I like in, the first season. Uh, 24 just is all that ticking time bomb terrorism bullshit that has been embedded. Yeah. Okay. Though, that's so, fair. Yeah. Yeah. He is still working as of right now. He's got like stuff that's in post production that's going to come out. So he's still at it. Bardell is played by John Hawks. He will appear in one episode of The X-Files in season six. He's had roles in movies and TV shows like Scary Movie, Northern Exposure, The Adventures of Bristol County Jr., Wings, Congo, From Dusk Till Dawn, CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Monk, Lost, and Eastbound and Down. He also had a lead role as Soul Star in 30 Steps of the Deadwood nice. and in the movie. And then he apparently turned down the role of the governor on The Walking Dead. Huh, I wonder why. So, I don't know. Maybe he just didn't want it, or maybe he had something else going on. So, hmm. yeah, but we get some overlap here because we've got some Deadwood stuff between the two of them. And they weren't in the same CSI episode, but Probably I think not, no. <laughs> Marshall Bell was in three episodes of Deadwood, and then Hawks was in 36 episodes. So they may have had some overlap there. I don't remember how many episodes of Deadwood there were. So I don't know. But he's like one of the main characters. So he's in almost all of them. So anyway, and then there's pigs. Yep, just a bunch of pigs in a pen, being pigs. They're squealing. I can't squeal because my throat's really rough right now, but I can snort. <laughs> <laughs> Doing pig things. Yep. I guess they're hogs, really, because they're big. But... Yeah. And then inside a house near the pig pen, we see the killer from earlier sitting at an empty table, and then we hear the voice of the judge, and he says. Sentence carried out contrary to just instructions of this court. And the killer's like, I had to be practical. It's hard to cut someone's tongue out while they're still alive. Which I imagine that's true. And also yeah, it's got to be slippery. It's got mm-hmm. key lime pie all over it. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm really going to want some key lime pie after this. <laughs> Should plan ahead. So the judge just stares at him. And the killer says that the guy bled out before he could get the tongue. And the judge is like, you acted as an agent of the court well impaired. And he's like, it was just one beer. And the judge tells him to remember who he is. And then he asks how the corpse was disposed of. And the killer says, same way as usual. Although it, it kind of he kind of hedges a little and it kind of sounds like maybe not as well as usual. But mm-hmm. I mean, he mentions like being in a hurry and stuff. So. And the judge says he has forgotten. The killer thinks he can lie as freely to him as he does to himself. And the killer's like, no, no, they'll never find it. I just, I had to hurry, you know? So I, I, I got rid of it, but I, it was kind of a rush job. And the judge says, Carl Nearman, you've acted selfishly. You've ignored the requirements of justice and the procedures of this court. And Nearman looks away. He doesn't look super afraid. He kind of looks just kind of annoyed. Uh, which I thought was weird because I knew what was coming. So I was like, mm-hmm. wow, this guy doesn't look scared. Like, yeah, he's, maybe... he's, he's kind of nervous. He's definitely uncomfortable. Yeah. So, yeah. He's uncomfortable, but he didn't look like, I don't know, I'd be terrified at this point. Maybe he's not yet. And the judge tells Nearman that he's discharging him from the court service. 
And then he like has Mr. Bardell enter the room and Bardell enters and stands behind Nearman. And the judge puts on a black executioner's hood and he tells Nearman to stand and receive sentence. And Bardell grabs Nearman and he pulls him up from his chair, which is probably not a good sign. Yep. And then the pigs are squealing. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to work for a rigid, self-proclaimed judge, eventually you're going to get judged, too. I feel like that's yeah. a really predictable outcome of this. Whole well, also, situation. assuming this guy was getting pretty slack on his job. So, yeah, I mean, job. yeah, so. I guess so. I agree. Cutting out tongues is probably harder than cutting out fingers. But, you know, yeah. And then we had a commercial after the pigs were all squealy, squealy. And then we come back and we see a dog and he's in the woods and he's digging. And then two women approach and they're like, hey, doggy, doggy, doggy. I forget what the dog's name was. And then they approach the dog and one of them is like, oh, because they realize the dog has found a poorly, possibly hurriedly buried body. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and apparently they're all like flies. Bzz, 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 yeah. bzz. They want to make sure you know this is a dead body. And it's not explicit, but these are two women wearing flannel, walking their dog in the Pacific Northwest. I think Mm -hmm. they're a lesbian couple. That is my my little fan. I think I think that was yeah. (laughs) And and they're I mean not to do the stereotype, they're both butch. They're there, but also just like there are two women hiking with a dog in flannel. I'm like I think they're supposed to be a couple, but maybe not. Short hair. Well, I think one had a ponytail, but one is definitely short haired. The main Mm -hmm. one. So I wasn't sure because like the one woman hangs back. And the one goes over to the dog and then she comes back and she says, she basically describes what's going on. And I'm like, is the other one blind? Maybe like she can't see. Oh, I thought it was just that she was hanging. Couldn't really tell what was there. Yeah. I, really I, see I, what's in I'm the actually pile. not sure. I, I was, I couldn't tell if she was maybe supposed to be blind or something or if she yeah, was just I think she just like, was because she was hung, she had hanging back position. So yeah. Yeah. Because where she's at, even though she was back there, it's like, you can still see the dog was like digging because she's like, the dog was digging and he found a body. We need to call. <laughs> so I'm like, she could see that. She might not know it was a body, but she could see the dog was digging. But I wasn't sure. But yeah. 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 But yeah, definitely, definitely coded as a lesbian couple. Yeah. Sure. Which I was like, yay, Pacific Northwest lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love whatever representation you can get in the 90s, <laughs> really. Just take it. Yeah. Well, and it's not bad representation. It's a little maybe stereotypy, just appearance wise, but it's not like no. I mean, they're just on a walk and they find a body. It happens yeah. to everyone. Yeah, I mean, especially in the woods. So yeah, I mean, that's yeah. Don't go you in. Always the woods. find the bodies in the woods. <laughs> that's what happens when you go in the woods. That's why I don't. I'm not really a woods person. Yeah, could be Bigfoot's in there. You don't know. You don't know. So yeah, Frank is in his basement office when Catherine calls for him. He turns over his pegboard full of photos of body parts. So he's like, mm, I'll just, you know, he's going to preemptively take care of that business. And Catherine comes down and Frank's like, how was work? And she says, you know, fine. And then she asks him about the package that he received and what he's working on. And he's like, why? And she's like, well, I was having lunch with a coworker, and they are counseling a woman who had a human tongue sent to her in the mail. And Frank is like, yep, Annie Tisman. <laughs> <laughs> and Catherine's like, well, I, you know, they wouldn't give me her name because, you know, that's confidentiality stuff. But then she asked if anyone spoke to her about her history. And Frank says the police did brief interviews, but they weren't productive. And Catherine tells them that 12 years ago, her husband was sent to prison for robbery. 
he was appealing the case post-conviction, claiming that the testimony against him was perjured, but he was murdered in prison before the matter was resolved. Mm. Mm. He thanks her, and she smiles and says she always feels like a trespasser down there. And he says neither of them should ever feel at home with what he does. And then his phone rings, and it's Bletcher. Mm-hmm. Then we're in the morgue, and Bletcher tells him about how the body was found and the tongue was cut out. And the body arrives, and Kurt Massey, the pathologist that we last saw in episode one, the pilot, is going over the details of the body. But Frank has become distracted by another body that's in the morgue, and he's looking at it instead of paying attention. And there's mud or blood or both or something under the fingernails of the body he's looking at. And he starts to get flashes that are similar to the previous ones of the tongue being cut out even though he's not looking at the body of the dude who had the tongue cut out. That's weird. So Bletcher tells him that that's an unrelated DOA. But Frank is like, who is it? Another detective tells it was just a vagrant. He was found by the rail yard. Massive loss of blood. Probably trying to hop a train, slipped, fell under. Happens three or four times a year. So Giebelhaus comes in and says they ran the prints on the body. The body with no tongue is Jonathan Mellon, a former Seattle cop. It's been retired for seven years. And then Frank goes over to look at the body with no tongue. And Giebelhaus says they're trying to run down any relatives. He was divorced and he had a reputation for being argumentative. Frank looks up and says the two bodies are connected. And Bletcher's like, one's a murder and one's a misadventure gone wrong. And Frank says, when they find out who this guy is, meaning the guy they call a vagrant, they will find the connection between them. And then he pulls off his gloves and he leaves. So he's like, mm, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. I love that they call it death by misadventure. That's something that comes <laughs> up in procedural sometimes, like especially like I know on Harrow, the Australian one that came up a couple times. I just think it's an interesting way, like death by misadventure. And it's like, it sounds so an much accident. more exciting than like I fell off something or yeah, something. I, mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you say accidental death, right? But yeah, I don't know. It's just it's a category, I guess. Hmm. Weird. So Jonathan Mellon, the dude with no tongue, is played by David Fredericks. Mm-hmm. He is only one of four actors who will play the same character on both The X-Files and Millennium. Oh, interesting. Yeah, only four people do that. He has a total of four X-Files appearances and he has two Millennium appearances. Obviously, the character that he plays in both shows is not this character because... Hmm, hasn't happened yet next files but in his next millennium appearance he will play a character he will have played twice on the x-files so the first time will be in x-files that actually airs two days after this episode back in 1996 okay our schedule is a little off so we won't actually see them on i want to rewatch for 11 days interesting two days back in 1996 11 days in 2022 on i want to rewatch so Hmm. interesting yeah and then you're asking who are the four people who are the four characters well when he appears on the x files we will have seen all four characters Ah. two will have made their first appearance on the x files and two will have made their first appearance on Millennium. Interesting. I know there's a crossover episode at some point. So, yeah. So that tells you the, at least one of them is going to be Frank Black. Uh huh. Yeah. So, yeah. And we know it's going to be this dude, but not playing this character. Right. Who are the other two? One of them has already shown up on Millennium. 
and one of them has already shown up on the X-Files. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably should know at least one of them already if you've listened to our X-Files episodes. So I think we mentioned it. So, Yeah, I think we did. Yeah. I don't remember what it was, though. <laughs> oh, Tori! <laughs> I have the memory of a, a snail, so I don't remember who it was, but I remember mentioning it. I remember it coming up. I'm going to tell you in secret off the podcast. <laughs> okay, back to the podcast. Okay. So in his basement, Frank is scrolling through digital court records online and he's talking to Jim and he says he needs to find the records for Tisman's husband's appeal. They may be archived in hard copy only. He thinks the former Seattle cop they ID'd as the murder victim may possibly have been involved with Tisman's case in some capacity or maybe not. And Jim says he'll do what he can and he hangs up and Frank rubs his eyes and the doorbell rings. Outside is Bletcher, and he tells Frank that Frank was right. They found tissue under the DOA's fingernails, and the blood type matched, and he expects DNA confirmation as well. So they were killer and victim in the morgue at the same time. The killer was Carl Nierman. He was an ex-con. He did several stints in prison for armed robbery, grand theft. He was last released five years ago, but hasn't had any trouble since. Bletcher just wanted Frank to know he was right, and he wanted him to hear it from him. He starts to leave, but Frank is like, no, that doesn't fit. And Bletcher's like, Frank, come on. You made the connection. It's done. And Frank says there is a connection, but it's easy to overlook the complexity. Nearman's profile doesn't fit the process needed. He senses an act of hubris, some kind of perverse calculation. There's someone else in this. And during this conversation, like, I don't know, Bletcher, when he tells him that he made the connection, he's like, that's magic that you do. And Frank protests that it's not magic. And Bletcher's like, well, that's what they used to say, you know, from the the witch pyre is that they weren't doing real magic or whatever. Anyway, I just, (laughs) I definitely feel like there's a little magic and I'm going to keep arguing this point. I think he's slightly psychic. So uh, we actually did see wounds on the body this time and Frank saw them. So like I could see him making the connection that he had attacked this person and maybe cut out their tongue. But I still feel like connecting those dots was a bit of a leap. So I'm going to go with like team psychic magic. Team well, he was getting magic. flashes of the tongue being cut out just by looking at the box. I don't uh-huh. know that he really looked at the tongue. Mm-hmm. So although yeah. he probably knew what it was. And so it was like, oh, yeah, if there's a tongue laying in some newspaper, it probably got cut out. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he was told jump. that before you yeah. got there, but still. Yeah, I don't know. Chris Carter says that you are wrong with your team psychic uh-huh. magic. So, well, Chris Carter has been wrong about his own characters before. So I'm just saying <laughs> I think he's wrong about this. <laughs> hey, okay. next episode, we're going to get into a little bit of your th- theory about jordan possibly being psychic too maybe oh maybe. yeah 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 yeah. which I, yeah. I do think she is psychic i think it runs in the family <laughs> yeah. so we see the judge and he's applying a plaster cast to bardell's leg and is relating the case of a landlord who removed the lighting from a common stairwell which caused the death of a 62 year old woman who fell down the stairs and it's like a full leg cast too, like up in the thighs so like bardell mm-hmm. is not gonna be able to like bend his knee or anything and then he puts on his hood and he pronounces sentence. Bardell is to kidnap the landlord and transport him to a designated location and amputate his leg below the right knee. The prisoner shall be conscious and Bardell is to make him aware of the court sentence. 
Bardell mentions that with it just being the two of them, it doesn't seem like they need to be so formal. The judge says his hood may seem superfluous, but he wears it to honor what they do and to set it apart from more common actions. Bardell says he respects that. It's just that it feels like a court of law. The judge says his is not a court of law. It is a court of justice. Its scope is not as broad as the common courts. It is narrower, deeper, more pure. Its judgments are final. And Bardell tells the judge that he is grateful, that he feels good about what they're doing. And then we see Bardell struggling to change a tire in the rain, and his leg is in the full leg cast, and he kind of flags down an approaching car, and the driver's like, oh, God damn it, as he comes to a stop. And then Bar's like, hey, mister, can you please help me? And the driver's like, oh. And then he opens his car door, and it's a commercial. Yeah, damn, he got bundied. <laughs> bundied hard i mean i don't want to say don't help other people because that's a really horrible way to live but i don't know maybe you shouldn't help other people <laughs> just how you get murdered i mean he way. must have not been that great at fighting because like bardell can't move that great he's got like a full leg cast so yeah. i guess you know <laughs> have the guy bend down and then whack him with the tire right i mean probably. you just have to catch him off guard yeah. you know yep so then we're at the federal office building in downtown Seattle. And some of the B-roll looks like it might actually be from downtown Seattle. I can't tell for sure because obviously this was in the 1990s. I mean, they got Portland. In so, But I, I do episode, think some so. of the B-roll is actually downtown Seattle. Yeah. It looks very familiar. And I've only been to Vancouver once. So Yeah. Well, I mean, they occasionally yeah. use some actual DC stuff in the X-Files too. Yeah, for like the, the closer stuff when people are actually going in and out of the building, they use a different building. But Right. So... So a woman is sitting at a package scanner and she's listening to a coworker drone on about something and she rolls her eyes because he keeps talking, but then her eyes grow wide and we can see on the screen she's looking at that it looks like there's a lower leg in the package going through the scanner, like bone and all. You can see the skeleton and the flesh of it. So she's like, kind of stammers out the word foot and then she points and she has the guy reverse the conveyor and he stops it with the package on the scanner and then he calls for a supervisor and he mutters that he's not trained for this kind of crap, which fair, he's probably not. He's trained for bombs, but not you know, random limbs. And the woman just like stares at the screen. She's just like, well, what the heck? This is not a good day at work for me. At least got rid of the guy because, man, he's true. Just, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's true. Yeah. And then we see Massey is examining the leg. And he says that based on decomposition, assuming no refrigeration, he'd place the amputation at maybe 36 to 100 hours. So Bletcher, Giebelhaus, and Tiebel are in the room with Massey, and Bletcher figures that it was Nierman who cut the guy's leg off, because timing-wise, that actually works out. Frank enters, and he asks who the addressee was. The last name was Philman. He was a widower, and he was due to retire. Giebelhaus says that based on Massey's examination and the date stamp on the package, even accounting for it sitting in the Dropbox, processing, sorting, they figure Nearman had time to drop it off before his accident, and Massey concurs. So that all works out. They can pin this all on Nearman and call it a day. Yay, close case. Yeah, there we go. And Massey agrees that it falls within the time frame, and it was removed while the victim was still alive, which fits the established pattern. Frank has a flash of the driver we saw screaming and blood. He says that's not the established pattern. It's a return to the established pattern. People size. People's like, oh. <laughs> and Frank says, if Nearman killed the cop, he didn't do this. 
And Bletcher's like, well, then who did? And Frank's like, someone else. <laughs> and then Frank sees an impression on the leg and he asks if there was a sock. And there was a sock. So Giebelhaus says, we got our guy. Every piece of evidence says he did it. And Frank says, no, this is the old pattern. The person that that leg belongs to may still be alive. And if we waste time debating, that may change. So Bletcher holds open an envelope and Frank puts the sock in it, as well as some residue that was in the tray. And then we see the residue being put into a test tube and some liquid is added. And then it's put into a centrifuge by Anders. And Frank is reading some files when his phone rings. Jim's like, did you receive those files I sent? And Frank's like, yep, yeah, going through them now. Turns out that the cop was a prosecution witness in Tisman's trial. So someone who may have offered perjured testimony is killed, and then their tongue is sent to Tisman's widow. Why? Frank says someone is writing wrongs. And Jim is like, like what, some kind of new age vigilante? And Frank says someone is directing the killer or killers. There's nothing new about that. Whoa. Yeah. So then we see Andrews and she's taking images of the sample and she runs a digital scan for a match. And she comes up with a match that is 0.99997 positive. So 99.997 positive. So based on the match, she tells Bletcher they need to look for a cranberry farm, possibly out of production for a few years. With a map, she could probably narrow the search to a few specific sites. And then we see a ground crew and they're sweeping a field and there's helicopters overhead and Bletcher has Giebelhaus continue the sweep of the field while he takes a few officers into the brush and he finds a tire track and the track leads to some kind of like tanker kind of thing. I don't know. It looks like a giant like barrel smoker or a grill. It's not, it isn't, but I don't know what it's supposed to hold. Maybe it's supposed to hold water. Or I don't know what it is. Maybe you put your hay so it doesn't get wet or something. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's just like a big, think of a giant barrel turned on its side and it's got a hatch like mm-hmm. on the top. So don't know. Don't know what that's used for. I don't live out in the woods. So Bletcher pulls open the hatch and he sees the victim inside and he calls for paramedics and then he jumps down inside. It's a big container. And then Teeple calls after him. is like, Lieutenant Bletcher. And then Bletcher's like, we found the victim, but there's no hurry. So, mm-hmm. you know, tell them EMTs, they don't have to run. if They don't yeah. want to because they're dead. This guy's already dead. It's too late. Yeah, too late. They debated too long. Yeah. Maybe. We don't know. So in the morgue, Bletcher asks Andrews how long the guy has been dead. And she says only a couple hours. And Massey says the improvised tourniquet probably kept him alive. He used his own belt. And Bletcher's like, imagine the pain knowing that you're going to die. And Frank says that was probably the order of execution. The killer was following protocol. Resuming the MO, Jim Pinsir says. And Bletcher's like, orders from whom? Frank is like a controller, someone who uses others to serve his orders. And now he's found someone new to take over his mission. So Bletcher is like, so we're looking for two guys now? And Frank says the killer is capable of high level of violence. Likely someone has been through the justice system and done time. Then Jim says he's probably an ex-con who moves in similar circles. And there are limited places where those people can go to socialize. And Bletcher's like, I think I know the kind of places you mean. I, I feel, so my thing at the end of the scene was just like, they could go around to bars that ex-cons on parole who shouldn't be at bars might frequent. 
or they could just maybe get a list of people recently released from prison. I don't know. Maybe they're going to do both. Maybe. They don't say they're doing the other thing, though. Yeah. (laughs) So an obviously unmarked police car cruises past the tittle-tattle room, and inside, Frank is sitting at a table. And Bletcher talks to the bartender and then comes back to the table and is like, this is a waste of time because the bartender like wouldn't tell him anything. And he's like, yeah, the knucklehead bartender either doesn't know anything or he won't tell what he does. Meanwhile, Bardale enters and goes to the bar and he looks back at Frank and Bletcher, probably because Bletcher screams cop pretty much as much as the unmarked car did. So he's kind of suspicious. (laughs) But Frank also clocks him. And he kind of shushes Bletcher and gets up to leave and ushers him out and tries to keep him from talking until they're outside. And then in the car, he tells Bletcher, the killer is inside. (gasps) The killer is inside. Commercial. And then we come back from commercial and Frank and Bletcher are in the car and they're waiting for Bardale to leave so they can like follow him. And Frank is describing him, assumedly, so they can check recent releases. So I guess maybe someone did get that list and they can match him to someone who was recently released from prison. And Bletcher wants to go in and get him, but Frank wants to wait because they don't want him. They want who he's working for. And Bletcher's like, well, he'll give it up eventually. But Frank is like, no, just wait. Inside, Bardale's on the phone with the judge. So he's like, hey, I'm in this bar. There were cops here. Now they're waiting outside. Like, he knows what's going on. So they they were not very subtle. And the judge tells Bardale he's under his protection. The police cannot presume to override their court. This guy is like 10 kinds of delusional. It's, yeah, anyway. Bardale's like, I've got cops outside and you're riding your justice horse. And the judge tells him to shut up. His fear is making him insolent. It's not Bardale they want. If they wanted him, they would have come inside and taken him already. Therefore, they must know that he, the judge, exists. He says he's been wanting to meet a man who could find him. So now he's like just enamored with the fact that someone figured him out, I guess. And he tells Bardale to get in the car and leave. They will come to him and he will protect Bardale. So Bardale agrees and hangs up. And he goes to the door, but then he stops and he looks at the restroom. It's got to go. He's like, man, they're going to take me in. I might not get to go to the bathroom and I want to pee myself. So I got to use the restroom. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's what he's thinking, but yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, maybe. Who knows? Anyway, outside, Giebelhaus and Tiefel pull up alongside Frank and Bletcher. And Bletcher's like, we've waited long enough. And he tells Giebelhaus and Tiefel to move in. They have the description. And so they go inside and they enter the bathroom. And Tiefel points to an open window. Oh, oh they missed him. Went out the window. So outside, we see the lights go out at the tittle-tattle room and all but one car has left. And Frank is like, that's the car. That's the one that will lead them to the man they're looking for. Bletcher doubts it. He figures it's probably hot and that the plates are probably stolen. And Frank says he doesn't think the man they're looking for works like that. So there's a knock on a door and a door opens and we see Bletcher. And he's like, hello, I'm Detective Lieutenant Bletcher, Seattle PD. And then we turn and we see the judge at the door. Oh. And Bletcher says, I'd like to ask him a few questions. And the judge is like, I've been expecting you. And we see people and a uniformed officer outside by a patrol car. And the judge is like, come in, come in. And Bletcher says, actually, we would like you to come with us. And the judge sees Frank silhouetted near an animal pen. And he smiles because he knows that's the man. That's the one I want to talk to. Somehow they always know who Frank is and he always knows who they are. It's weird. 
It's because he thinks like them and they can sense it. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. It's like if you saw yourself in the mirror, you would know yourself, right? You're not like, whoa, who's that? So <laughs> sometimes I am. Like, what, <laughs> is that what happens? What what is going on here? Anyway. So Bletcher walks into the ADA's office and she tells him that they found journals that link to the addresses of packages that were sent and the victims that were identified. So Bletcher asks if they're ready to charge him. She says she called her boss, you know, the DA, and he said no. There are over a thousand names in the journals, but nothing that provides motive or intent. She asks if they've gotten a statement from him. And Bletcher's like, we're working on it. And she's like, that's a no. <laughs> so, yeah, they can't they can't really charge this guy because they don't have enough. Nope. So then we see Bletcher, Gable House, and Teeple are in the interrogation room with the judge. And Bletcher pushes a morgue photo of Carl Nearman at him and asks if he knows who that is. And the judge says, well, it could be Carl. He's a man I hired to care for my hogs. He was a drifter and an alcoholic, and he never asked him his last name. Bletcher's like, well, do you know where he is now? And the judge is like, well, in that photo, he looks dead. But <laughs> since he won't say, I won't guess, which I mean, that's fair. And Bletcher asks about Melon, the dead cop, and the judge is like, don't know him. And Bletcher slaps down a mugshot of Bardale, and the judge says it looks like Mike. And Gable House is like, another man you hired that you barely know to feed your pigs? And the judge says, that's what I said, if that is Mike. So he's like denying everything and giving very little. <laughs> and Bletcher says he claims to be a livestock auctioneer, and the judge goes into his auctioneer spiel, which he's you know, he's got the auctioneer voice. And then Gable House tells him to shut up because it's annoying. And he's pissed off because they're not giving him any information. Yep, they're not getting anything. I love that. Well, he in the photo, he looks dead. <laughs> I know. It's good. Like, do you know where he is? Well, <laughs> guessing the morgue, but you won't say, so just not gonna not gonna, not gonna say guess. Anything. Yep. Yep. So in the hall, Giebel House tells Frank that in 10 minutes, they're going to have to let him go. And Frank says that he'd like to talk to him. And Teeple says that he actually asked for Frank last night. Giebel House walks Frank to the interrogation room, and Teeple says that he called Frank the outsider. Because he doesn't know his name, right? So mm -hmm. Frank enters the room, and the judge smiles, and he stands. Because now he's talking to the guy he wants to talk to. So Giebel House leaves and closes the door, and Frank tells the judge to sit down. So they sit. And Frank asked what he should call him. And he says, judge is fine. Or the name on the report. My name is Legion. And Frank is like, Legion? And the judge says, when Jesus expelled demons from a herd of enchanted hogs, it is said they told him their name was Legion. And then he asked Frank to come work for him. And Frank's like, work? Do you mean kill? And the judge says that every man finds his own path to justice. He needn't commit himself now. The offer remains open. A month, a year, there are many benefits. He knows he is afraid sometimes for his family, his wife, and he has a child now too, yes? Frank asks what he said to Bardell when he called him from the bar. And he's like, Bardell? Who can speak to Bardell? A slave of echoes. I can talk to you. I can show you absolute justice. An unconstrained justice where you can act without fear. Bardell and those like him, they fear me. They obey me. 
and he tells Frank that his family would be free from such threats. The police are going to release him shortly. He never allowed Frank and his associates to get close to him before. He wanted to allow Frank to hear his offer, feel its truth, know his strength. And Frank says they'll find Bardell. And the judge is like, I'm sure you will. And then Bletcher and Giebelhaus enter, and the judge rises, and he tells Frank to remember the offer remains open. And if he seems difficult to reach, just to not make the conventional assumptions. Then Bletcher's like, what did he say to you? And Frank is like, he offered me a job. <laughs> Pretty much. So at home, Frank is sitting at the kitchen table and he has this uneaten sandwich in front of him. Catherine like walks in, sees him, and she sees the sandwich. And she's like, you know, when I'm upset, all I can do is eat. I go both ways on that. Like it depends on what I'm upset about and how like either I can't eat or all I can do is eat. So I kind of, for me, it's either or just depends on what the source of the problem is. I guess. But anyway, it's been a week and Frank says the guy they picked up has filed half a dozen lawsuits. The city's attorneys have ordered the police to basically stay away from this guy because he's just a litigious nightmare and he's, He's going to sue them for everything they do. And if they come near his property, yeah, it's not going to be good. So Catherine can't believe there's nothing they can do. What about the accomplice? And Frank's like, we can't find him. We assume he's dead, which I would assume that too. And Catherine asks, why? Couldn't he just be in hiding? And Frank's like, this guy spent his whole life in prison. He's no good at hiding. He'd be seeking his own cover. And then something seems to click and Frank kind of like seems to think of something. So then we see Frank in a car and he pulls up to the edge of the judge's farm and Bletcher is standing near the fence. And he's like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be this close to his property. And Frank tells him he thinks Bardale is in there. That's why they can't find him. And Bletcher's like, well, I can't go in there. If I do and Bardale isn't there, the department and the city will be in real legal trouble. And so Frank tells him to stay close by. And then Frank drives up to the judge's house. And we see the pigs and the nearby pen are squealing. And Frank kind of approaches the house silently. And then he finds an envelope pinned to the door. He removes it and it reads Frank Black. And inside it says, sorry to have missed you another time. So oh, judge was expecting him, I guess. Mm. So Frank goes inside the house and he hears like a can pop top. So he goes into a room and he sees Bardale is slamming a beer and Bardale crunches the can and throws it on the floor. And he's like, you a cop? And Frank says, no, he's just a private citizen. Bardale's like, like me. He goes to the fridge and he gets another beer. And from the light of the fridge, we can see that Bardale is covered with like cuts and streaks of blood. Like he's been in an altercation recently. And Bardale's like, you looking for someone? And Frank's like, yes, the owner of this residence. And Bardale's like, he's around. So Frank flips on the light and he tells Bardale that he has nowhere to go. And Bardale's like, except back to prison. He was always going back to prison. And Frank asks where he got those cuts. And he just says, on business. And Frank sees a flash of mud and pig squealing and what looks like a femur sticking out of the mud, which... 
Again, the mm. minute I saw the pigs, I was like, they're eating bodies. So I'm not surprised by that in any way. I've seen the first season of Hannibal. I know how that goes. And Bardale says, that man wasn't no judge. And Frank asks what he was. And Bardale's like, well, who cares now? He was no judge of me, as it turns out. And Frank's like, so did he betray you? So Bardell sits down and he says in prison, you don't have it both ways. He offers Frank's a cigarette. Frank's like, nah, <laughs> fine. And Bardell says, you're either an inmate or you're a convict, a man or a worthless piece of crap. Judge says the system was a piece of crap. And then he got in bed with the system. He was a pig, just like the rest. And Frank asks if the judge promised to take care of him on the outside. And Bardell takes a big old drag off his cigarette. Says it doesn't matter what he said. It's what he was that mattered. He was a bitch to let those cops take him. A bitch to file lawsuits afterwards. He was a bitch in the heart. He wasn't any kind of judge. Bitch was pure pig. So Frank says he'd like Bardell to come outside with him. And Bardell asks Frank if he knows what Gary Gilmore said right before they shot him. And Frank nods in that kind of like, yeah, but tell me kind of way. Like he's kind of like, hmm. And Bardell says, well then, let's do it. So the pigs are squealing outside and there's cops and there's police tape everywhere. And Bletcher comes out of the back of the patrol car and he tells Bardell, he's like, well, you can just have it your way then. So Bardell is just like sitting in the car looking forward and then it pulls away. Bardell wouldn't talk to him. So he asked Frank what Bardell told him. And Frank says he told him the judge was a pig. And then we see a bloody hand and part of a leg sticking out of the mud. Mm -hmm. Cops are all trying to like get all the animals out of the pens. So there's pigs and cows and all kinds of stuff. So Bletcher says, so we killed him and threw him in with the pigs. And Frank says, maybe hamstrung him and dumped him in. He doesn't know. He doesn't want to know. And Bletcher asks if they'll find the bodies of other victims in there. And Frank is just like, it's over. I'm going home. So Frank drives away. And we see the police are in all the different pens and the animal corrals. They've got lights and everything. And in one of the corrals is the body of the judge just laying there with his arms out, staring up dead. Yeah. Then it's the end. Dun, dun. I have to say, I'm surprised that it's the judge that ended up in there and not Bardale. Because I thought that the judge was going to kill him. And then, I don't know. Yeah, this episode is interesting. That's one way to put it. <laughs> was well, there's a lot of like in the scene with so when they're in the interrogation room, and I mean it it's good like when he's in there with them and he's like, Oh, like, well, he looks dead. So that was kind of good. Just that performance was good. But then also when he's in there talking with Frank, it's almost like almost like they're setting them up to be like the anti-Frank and like he's gonna be like a recurring like villain or something for the series. Yeah, just, yeah, oh, but totally. Then, but then they don't go that way. And it almost seems and we've seen this in other episodes previously, where it almost sounds like he might be like the incarnation of like the devil or something, possibly. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he's Frank's like arch villain, because you know, Frank is trying to fight the good fight, and then we've had a lot of like, you know, devil kind of stuff and apocalypse and that kind of thing so it seemed like they were kind of going that way but then it just seems like it's someone who just really had a high opinion of himself and you know and we never really find out what he was i guess he was the auctioneer guy but i assumed he was like 
someone who used to be in the judicial system and then was working outside of it as well. And that's why he had all this information too. They yeah. That information, but I kind of assumed we were going that way with it maybe, but they didn't do that. Yeah. That's what I thought too. And I'm usually on the side of like vigilante justice in TV, not in real life, but on television. <laughs> and I just, I, I don't know. Like, I just didn't like this guy. I didn't really support his mission. The black hood thing was, I mean, it's supposed to indicate, you know, his, his pathology and the way he's doing things and that's fine. It works. But like as someone observing, I'm not like, yes, I'm on your team for this. I think you're doing good work or whatever. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, he's supposed to be, and if if they were setting him up to be the villain, obviously you'd be like, oh, he's the villain of the series. Right. So, you know, well, I mean, yeah, you're not supposed to support him. I'm just saying normally, like I would kind of get behind like, okay, these people, died you're trying to right wrongs that our justice system wasn't able to carry out that's a commendable mm. mission maybe in some ways maybe not the way you're doing it but like yeah it's just not no part of me had any like oh yeah no i support this in some way like i just yeah, don't, well, I don't think like, you were no. supposed to no i don't think you were either i'm just saying yeah. that i definitely was not like i don't even yeah you're just annoying and gross yeah. but at the <laughs> end bardell also becomes very intriguing like with his yeah like he's that that end scene is really good it's good and it's interesting and i want to know like what happened yeah but like we don't really get we know that like he kind of figured out like he probably had to kill him or be killed like i'm sure that was probably the situation but yeah Yeah, i don't honestly i don't know because like the judge only killed the other dude because he was getting sloppy Mm -hmm. bardell wasn't sloppy i think he i think he just did exactly what he said like he took it like you like you say we're doing this, but then when push came to shove, you started using the same system that you say doesn't work to like fight the fight. Oh, and that's like true. Yeah, you say you say one thing, but then you do something completely different. You're a hypocrite. And so he passed judgment on the judge. So I yeah. think it's I think it, and that's why I think he's really interesting. Just like like his demeanor, like he like, you know, like if he was if he if it was kill or be killed, then it almost seems like he would have then also been willing to not just sit there and talk with Frank. He would have like tried because he totally could have. He totally could have attacked Frank. That's true. That's true. If he wanted to. So and he is very like resigned about going back to prison. And like mm-hmm. he knows that it's just a matter of time. Like he's not trying to run. He's hanging out at the house. You know, sooner or later they're gonna come. It's like he has him. his own code that he also follows. And yeah. so but he actually but he actually is like following it. Yeah. As opposed to maybe the judge didn't follow it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't yeah. get the Gary Gilmore reference. I didn't know if you did or not. I didn't either. And I knew I should have. And like, I'm like, I should know who that is, but I, I did not know. So, okay. So he was someone who was a killer, right? So it's interesting because when I was looking him up, the photo on his Wikipedia page is actually a mugshot from the Portland Police Bureau. Oh, interesting. So he lived in Portland for a while, but then he basically, he went to jail. He was super violent. They had to transfer him to another state. And then when he was released, he went to go live with his cousin to try and get him back on the right path. He got involved with a woman, a young woman. And then she kind of, they were not doing great. And then because the relationship wasn't going great, he ended up committing like two armed robberies and killed people. So he went to prison. So this is in 1970s. So at the time, the United States had halted executions. They weren't doing yes. the death penalty anymore. 
And he had been sentenced to death, but because we had halted those, he wasn't going to be killed. And so he actually petitioned to like get the death penalty. And the United States actually then reinstated the death penalty. And he was the first person to be put to death after it was reinstated. Huh. He was reinstated in 76 and he was killed in 77. The movie, The Executioner Song, is based on the actual book written by Norman Mailer, which is also called The Executioner Song. And it is about Gary Gilmore. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And and so the then let's do it. That is supposedly those were his last words when they put the he was shot by firing squad oh god yeah supposedly those were his last words apparently his actual last words were like in latin because like the priest was given last rites and he replied in latin for the last rites but when they were like you know you want to do this put the hood on he was like let's do it the whole let's do it thing in real life the guy who created the ad campaign for nike says that was the inspiration for it was the oh my Gilmore god case what that's that's wild yep so norman mailer wrote the book about it and then they made the movie about it which is actually a tv movie and you can watch it it's on youtube oh my gosh so it stars tommy lee (laughs) jones as gary gilmore tommy lee jones won an emmy award for this oh wow yeah and then the song bring on the night by the police is apparently so that song has actually been it was an old song that Sting had wrote for his previous band and then he kind of reworked it but he said after hearing about the Gary Gilmore case that he kind of could see that story in the song itself it's not like he wrote it about the guy but like it kind of meant the same stuff so yeah so we got we've got the Portland Police Bureau we've got the police we've got Tommy Lee Jones Men in Black we've got True Crime and then also Sting does say that the song Bring on the Night was also based on a poem that was about Pontius Pilate. And so we have some Jesus action going on. (laughs) And then at the end of this episode, the judge is laid out like in crucifixion style, like his arms are out and he's laying Uh there. guy. So it's like, is he supposed to be like a Jesus? And so like, it's very like just all kinds of, again, I'll make connections anywhere. <laughs> so it was just it was one another one of those deep dives where you like dive into stuff you're like oh my god oh my god oh my god so it was just kind of crazy like it, it just kept going it was insane so i'll have links to a bunch of stuff in the show notes people can look it up themselves so that mean yeah so, but it was just kind of like just you, you'd be reading something like oh that's oh what's that you click on that one and be like it was, it was total rabbit hole shit it was just like boom 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 and then it circled back to the question i was going to ask you about with like the at the end when he's just laying there looking up it's kind of like, is that supposed to be a Jesus thing? I don't know. So, man, that's totally crazy. Yeah, but that's 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 the Gary Gilmore thing. I was not familiar with that. So, all I could think of was a combination of Gary Glitter and the Gilmore Girls, and I'm like, it's neither one of those things. So I had to look <laughs> it up. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, I should recognize that, but for some reason I don't, and I'm not gonna look it up. So I no, yeah, he you know he was killed by firing squad. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You see him in a chair in front of some sandbags to catch the bullets. And then at the, this was in Utah. And then they have five guys with rifles and they're behind things. And then apparently one gun doesn't have bullets. Another four do. So one has a blank so that there's always the like, well, I'm not the one who shot him. That kind of, you know, so people are like, 
you know, whatever. It's also like police sign up to fire the gun. So it's not like they're like, you know, like, oh, I don't want to do it. It's like volunteers. So they're happy about it. But yeah, and they put a hood on him and then they shoot him. Boom. And then he dies. Hmm. There is some controversy that apparently his shirt had five bullet holes in it, but there's only supposed to be four bullets. So, mm. yeah, it's messed up. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to watch it because, you know, yeah. me, TV movie guy. So, yeah, it came out in 82 on television. I believe Tommy Lee Jones looks so fucking young. Oh, my God. He yeah, I so bet young. in 82. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. But I'm like, wow, he won like an Emmy for this. And it's a TV movie. I'm probably going to have to watch it. So. Yeah. Definitely sounds like a Nick thing. And yeah, I was like, is that's... this a two-parter? So it aired, so it it, it aired over two nights, like two yeah, consecutive which nights. Which is so pretty Sunday common a, for like Sunday TV and mini a Monday. series or yeah. So it was TV a Sunday movies. and a Monday. So yeah. Yeah. So technically it's not a TV movie. This is technically mini-series. it is a mini series because yeah. it's more than one. Yeah, we talked about that with the whole cold check thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, pretty interesting. So yeah. If you're a curious individual, you can learn lots of interesting stuff just by randomly watching television and being like, what are they talking about? And then going and looking it up. It's kind of cool. I like it a lot, actually. <laughs> and that's how I know everything that I know, basically. So yeah. it's TV. <laughs> yeah. You're, re- you're reading a book. Don't know what the word means. So you look up the word. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you hear someone mention something. I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. So you look it up. And of course, you know, in our modern world, it's super easy to look it up. Much easier. Yeah, I can, it really I can, is. I can pause and go to Wikipedia and type in the dude's name and find out the wait and go to the library later. But super nice. But yeah, it's interesting. It is very convenient. But yeah, that was the judge. Was the judge. I guess we should probably rate it. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. judge. The judge. Ooh. I, I feel like this is my least favorite episode of the show so far. I wasn't that I mean, it's only the it. fourth one. So, I know, yeah. but I wasn't, I wasn't digging it very hard. Um, I also just maybe wasn't in the mood for serial killer stuff last night when I watched it. I was like, oh, Oh, no, man, this series is not for you then, Tori. (laughs) No, I just had a long week at work. And so then like at the end of the day and then I I forgot that I had to watch. (laughs) I I mean, I guess the judge would tech. I mean, the judge would the judge be considered a serial killer because he's having other people do it. I mean, sort of. I mean, Manson is right. So, yeah, I would say he's like. Oh yeah, I guess Manson is leader. He's, killer, he's causing the deaths, right? I just wonder if that's accurate, though. We say say that, but I wonder if that's actually accurate as far as the actual definition. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, just this show tends to be about serial killers, right? Not always, but yeah, you know, I that think Manson is more of a mass murderer because they kind of so, did it all at once. I mean, they did other crimes and they did or other yeah. murders, but the big one that everyone thinks about was actually a mass murder, not a mm-hmm. serial murder. True. So. Yeah. yeah, I just mean Millennium tends to be about serial killers and yeah. killers that Frank is yeah. chasing. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not really in the mood for that, but I will make it happen. So I don't know if that played a part. Also, just like the pigs thing. It reminded me of Hannibal, which didn't inspire oh. warm feelings either. So I was just like, uh, no, I, I, I mean, it's OK. It's not bad. I think I'm going to give it a five. Okay. Am I even anything less? I don't even know what I've rated Millennium no. so far. You've done eight, six, seven, five. Okay, yeah. So I feel like this one's probably a five. It's pretty, I mean, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't, I was like, eh, it was kind of eh. Okay. You're returning to the mean. Yeah. What you're doing. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Um, uh, I think maybe a six. I'll do. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think it probably is the weakest of the episodes so far, mm-hmm. but it also had a lot of interesting stuff going on in it that I think, like the like me just thinking, like we talked about, like me thinking, like, is this guy going to become like, you know? And then again, like, I mean, maybe, maybe it'll turn out. We don't know. We've only watched four episodes. Like, was it actually someone acting through the judge? Like, is the devil there? Is the devil going to show up at some point? I hope it's not Donnie Faster. Fuck that guy. But well, he wasn't transforming wasn't. into random shapes, so I no. don't think he was a demon. I also just but... <laughs> really like, like, I really like Marshall Bell. Yeah, he's I mean, he's very guys. good. Like, he's he very was good. very like in Fallen Angel. He's just he's just good doing what he does mm-hmm. and he's got the face for it too he's got the voice oh, yeah. for it so he's just you know he found he found out like this is where i work and he does that i haven't really seen a lot of other stuff that he's in i'm kind of curious to go see i've been meaning to watch deadwood i never have because i'm a big fan of ian mcshane i just never got around to watching deadwood because as we've mentioned many times i'm not a big like i will find excuses not to watch stuff so that is the one thing about doing the podcast is it makes me watch stuff that i've wanted to watch and <laughs> never have so <laughs> it's good so and then bardell was got a major role in deadwood too apparently so and i found him super interesting yeah so like, i get to watch marshall bell in deadwood i get to watch john hawks i get to watch ian mcshane so i probably should watch deadwood so <laughs> It is another one of those, it, and it's kind of like Millennium, where they didn't really end the show properly because it kind of just stopped, and then they brought back a movie. Millennium, we've kind of hinted it's going to happen the same thing, and then they're going to have a little X Files conclusion, which is what I've read probably about as satisfying as the Deadwood movie was for people who like Deadwood. So, yeah, not, yeah, so. not much, yeah, yeah, so. Hmm. Again, connections. I'll find the connections. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all right. So five and six, our lowest episode for both of us so far. Yeah, so, yeah. But yeah, it just had a. It had a lot of. It's if if we do, we haven't decided if we're gonna do that yet or not with Millennium. If we're doing the wrap up stuff like we do with the X Files, if we do do wrap up stuff with Millennium, I think this is one of those ones where it's gonna be like we have that thing where we talk about the episode with the most potential. This this one might be it. I mean, we're only four episodes in, but this one right, yeah, we are pretty early in, but this yeah, it does. It did have a lot that. of potential. I don't know, it didn't really reach it, but yeah, it definitely exists. Yeah. All righty. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to us just ramble on about <laughs> stuff and me finding connections between things that don't really have any connections, but I'll still do it. Yeah, and thanks for supporting us on Patreon. We always appreciate it. Yeah do a lot yeah bye (laughs) bye i want to rewatch is hosted by tori and nick and recorded in collaboration with black cat and orange tuxedo studios episode production design and editing is by lazy and productions our music is dark science by david hillowitz and the truth is what we make of it by the agrarians Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time for Millennium Monday in episode five. I already told you the title once before if you were listening carefully. It is 522666. And we'll try to figure out if the truth truth is is still out there.
Let me right. end it. And then I'm going to go give my cats a snack and then I will come back. Oh, you've been so good. Lock, lock. I'm so proud of you. Good He's boy. Just lying next to me, looking up at me, looking cute, waiting for a snack. So I'll give them a little treat and then I'll come All right. back. Snack time.